Well, good morning. As Ray said, it is Memorial Day weekend and lots of people celebrate in lots of different ways, taking the day off and barbecuing and all of those things. But it is really a holiday that is about remembering, about remembering those who have come before us and who've made sacrifices. And one of the places that people do that and the ways that people do that um, is at the Arlington Cemetery. In the center of the Arlington Cemetery, there is a monument, uh, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Um, I've never had a chance to visit that personally. It's on my bucket list. It's a place that I want to go and visit. But the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier sits in the middle of the Arlington Cemetery, and it's guarded um, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And it's a real honor to be chosen to guard that monument but it's guarded by the old guard of the army. And there's an inscription written on the monument that says, here rests in honored glory an American soldier known but to God. You know, millions have visited that monument, and I can only imagine that they are moved by the sight of that. You would have to be moved by the sight of that. And I would imagine that you are changed in some way by that experience. Well, today we're going to visit a place in Scripture that's been visited by millions throughout history, been visited over and over um, by believers throughout centuries. But it's a place in God's Word that where God honors those who have been memorialized in His Word. Some of those people otherwise would have been known but to God. But God has erected this memorial, this monument of those that he's honored so that we could be moved by their testimony. We could be moved by their story. We could see the works of God's grace in their lives and we could be encouraged. Our faith could be strengthened and encouraged by them. You know, all throughout history, when we think of heroes... Afterwards, we think of their, their great stories. There are all kinds of stats about heroes, but really heroes are often just people just like us, or at least they start out being people just like us. They're everyday heroes. Um, I have been reminded recently in the news as we've heard all of the um, all of the stories that are coming from the Ukraine of everyday heroes, of people just like us who are fighting for their homes and their freedom and their families and the things that they hold deeply to in their convictions. But they are everyday people. Um, I heard the story of an old, of a grandmother who, who boldly went up to the Russian soldiers as they invaded um, her little village. And she went up to them and she gave them sunflower seeds. And she told the Russian soldiers, put them in your pockets because when you are lying all over our ground, the grounds after we have been victorious, the sunflowers are, the flowers are gonna grow and they are gonna be a testimony to our victory. And there are sunflower fields everywhere now as a, victor, as a testimony to the victory. And then I heard of um, this guy. I saw a video of this guy, just your average, your average farmer. He just got in his tractor and he stole the Russian tank. He became an overnight hero, right? You know, uh, those Ukrainians, let me just tell you, they are feisty, right? Then I heard of this village, that the village, they just went out. The Russian tank was... Um, 
coming and was attacking. They banded together and with their bare hands, they stopped a Russian tank. Just with their hands, they stopped and the tank could not um, move forward and attack their village. That's what everyday heroes look like. If they look like farmers and teachers and nurses, and then grandmothers and the guy next door, they're all just kind of banding together, right? Their lives are unworthy or would seem to be unworthy of being called a hero. But we know that that's true. That's what heroes look like. Well, that's how it is with our faith too. The Bible speaks in Hebrews eleven thirty eight about those of whom the world is not worthy. Those which the world would count unworthy of honor but God honors them. Hebrews chapter 11 is, it's been called, it's been referred to as this veritable hall of heroes of the faith. There are names memorialized in uh, chapter 11, and they include heroes like Abel and Enoch, Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah and Moses. They're heroes that you're probably familiar with. If you have any experience in scripture or if you've been a part of church for a while, you probably have heard of these heroes of the faith. But then beginning in verse 30, the author of the book of, heroes, of Hebrews he makes this shift, and it's this shift to names that are almost hidden in other passages of Scripture. People who would be unfamiliar to Christians and really unfamiliar to people who don't have a lot of experience with Scripture at all. But I would argue that they're special to us, that God placed them in Scripture for a specific reason. He placed them in Scripture so that we could identify with these heroes of the faith. These are heroes of the faith are just people like us. Because we see in Hebrews 11, 30 through 32, we see these unknown names of people like Barak and Jephthah. Listen, I've taught a lot of Sunday school lessons, and I don't ever remember teaching one about Jephthah, right? He's just not somebody we talk about a lot. But he's mingled in this hall of fame with people like Gideon and David and then we get to verse 31, and we meet a woman named Rahab. So today, I want us just to camp out on Rahab and her story, and listen to the story of Rahab and God's grace in her life. And then we're going to turn and look at the author of her faith and of our faith as we look at her story. Because this phrase, of whom the world is not worthy, it's not a condemnation of these heroes. It's a condemnation of the world and the world's inability to grasp the power of God at work in the lives of common people, of common heroes. It's reminiscent of Paul's analysis of God's glorious ways that we see in 1 Corinthians 1.27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. You see, God has elevated what man has despised. God gave us these people. He gave us these people as examples. People that the world would look at and would dismiss. People that the world would look at and would call unworthy. But God honors them. So as we look at Rahab's story and we learn from Rahab's story of her life, first, let's consider Rahab's past. Now, what I want you to hear about Rahab's story is Rahab was the epitome. Her life was the epitome of sin and of shame. 
Um, Rahab was a harlot. She ran this sort of inn at the edge of the city, on the, on the edge of the wall, really, of the city. Rahab um, was, the scripture is really clear that Rahab was living a life of sin. She was living a life of sin, and in fact, she was living off of the sin of others. And she was a woman who was living on the edge. She had this kind of throwaway life. She had a life that really looked like it could not be redeemed, that there was no hope for her. Or at least that's how it would seem. Rahab was also, she was an Amorite. Her name was derived from the word Ra, which was this uh, Egyptian god. You see, Rahab's people, she's a, this member of this idolatrous people. That, that Her faith had been passed down from generation to generation, much like we've been talking about in this previous series where our faith does get passed down from generation to generation. But what faith that had been passed down to her was that her people had turned their back on the one true God generations and generations ago. So now they are in, they are this idolatrous people who are living this kind of morally decadent life, and they are about to be obliterated, right? They're about to be demolished. But Rahab is not just condemned by the law of God, but because of her lifestyle, she is also despised by her pagan people. But this is the thing. The Lord has his heart set on this Amorite prostitute. And the ways of her past in no way indicate what God has planned for her future and for the future of her family. So as we learn more about Rahab and her story and her past, we have to look at more than just where she is. We have to look at her whole story. We have to look at the plot that she finds herself in. You know, every good story has a plot, and this one is complicated. It made me think about, I've recently just seen um, the, the movie um, Doctor Strange. I don't know how many of you are Marvel fans. I love Marvel, and I love Doctor Strange. Uh, my husband, not so much. Um, the Doctor Strange movie, I will not spoil it all for you, but I will say the Doctor Strange movie is strange. It is stranger than normal, right? And so just when you think the plot does not get any more complicated, there you enter another uh, universe, another multiverse, you enter another Doctor Strange and another Doctor Strange, and then Zombie Strange, and you're like, okay, the plot is even weirder than it could, and even more complicated. Well, this plot is equally complicated, but it is a real-life drama, a real-life complicated plot that Rahab is in the middle of, because Joshua has sent these spies in on this covert operation into enemy territory, and these spies find themselves somehow staying in the harlot, this harlot's house, right? And that's where they find, they find themselves. But here's the thing. They didn't go there at, in the same, for the same reason in the same way that other unscrupulous men find themselves under Rahab's roof, right? They went there to discover information because Rahab certainly, surely has information both from, from men of and in high places and men in low places. So right, they go there to discover information. And we're not told exactly why or exactly how, but for some reason, their covert plan is discovered, right? And their plan has been compromised. And then in this amazing scene that takes place in Joshua 2, verse 3, the very king of Jericho finds himself in these negotiations 
with this prostitute, right? And, and there's this whole um, scene where he's ordering that the men be turned over and this troop is sent out to seize the uh, men. But Rahab, in this very bold and very defiant wartime act, she covers up the truth of the matter and she conceals the spies under this flax that's drying on the top of her roof. And she sends the Amorite Gestapo on this crazy wild goose chase, right? And then this deal gets made. And because of her aid to Israel, when they come into the land, there's this sign. If they see this scarlet cord hanging in this window when they come into the land, it's going to be the sign of the covenant with the spies. And Israel will not destroy her family. They won't destroy her home. So the spies are secured. The plan is secured. God's promise gets carried out all because of this woman's plot. So when Joshua comes in and the walls of Jericho come tumbling down, Rahab and her family are saved. That's what this scripture in Hebrews 11, 30 and 31 are saying. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. You see, the writer of Hebrews is testifying that first, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. It was this crazy military strategy, right? This most ridiculous plan. The whole military strategy is walk around the walls, do some marching, do some blowing of the horns, and then the walls are going to come crashing down. But there was this faith and this obedience. They marched, they blew their horns, and the walls came crashing down. But then he's saying in this next verse, it shows that because of the faith of Rahab, that this plan was even possible in the first place. And in the end, what others see is just this red cord hanging in this, this harlot's window. It's seen by Israel as this sign. It's seen as this sign, very much like the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. It's this sort of Passover experience for this woman, this unmistakable scarlet sacrament of life in what what seems to be otherwise this monochromatic annihilation. So first, we have to consider her past. That plays into it. And then this plot that she finds herself in. But probably the most important thing that we have to consider is you have to consider her profession. And I'm not talking about her profession at the end, right? That's important. But what's more important is you have to consider the key to this whole story. The key to her whole, this whole story is her profession of faith in Joshua 2, 9 through 13, when she says, I know that the Lord has given you this land for the Lord your God. He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. This passage has so much power, even in its simplicity, because it's this portrayal of the gospel. This former harlot, she believes in her heart that there is a God, one true God, and that he is the only way for her to be redeemed, and literally for the only way for her life to be saved from the enemy. And her faith leads her to works of righteousness. Not works of righteousness just for work's sake, but it is works of righteousness 
is out of her worship and her faith in God. And it's out of this cry for her own salvation that she enters into this covenant with God's people. She's turning her back on her old ways, and she's turning towards this Lord, to this Lord of her life, right? And, to, and she's turning towards life. It's this um, scarlet cord, right? This scarlet sign in this window. It becomes this token of her faith. It becomes a sort of sacrament. She's saying, I will be identified from now on. I will be identified with Israel, no longer with the Amorites. And we read in Ephesians 2.8, for by grace... By grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, but it's a gift of God. It's her faith that saved her life. And God counted her faith to righteousness, and he saved her soul. And you have to make no mistake. This woman is trusting in the promises of God. She's trusting God. She's trusting God to cover her past. She's trusting God to cover her sins, and she's trusting God who's going to secure her family and who's going to secure her future. No longer will she be a woman of sin, but she's saying, I will be a woman of faith. We hear the words of the Apostle Paul echoing all throughout this story. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so it may be so it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. You see, through her profession, her profession of faith, this woman who has a past becomes a woman with a very significant place a very significant place both in Scripture and a significant place in history. Because not only is she mentioned in Hebrews and she's mentioned in James, but then she also ends up with this remarkable place in Scripture. Her name, the name of this woman who was a woman of sin, who sided with God's people, she ends up memorialized in Matthew in chapter 1. Because there we read her name and she's listed. She's listed as the mother of Boaz who marries Ruth and who ends up being the the grandmother of King David, and then in the direct line of the Savior of the world, Jesus. But the world that's in unbelief, the world who would have accused her of her sins, who would have dismissed her, who would not be worthy of her, says the Lord, that she ends up to be in the line of David, the line of Jesus. Rahab's story, though, is not just this story that we look at and then we tell and that we think, this is a great story of someone who's redeemed, this Cinderella story who's plucked from her past and who finds this new future in this new place. It's a story that has great impact for us as we see God's grace working in our life. It has implications for how we live out our life and our salvation and our faith. And so I want to point to just a few of those lessons this morning. And the first is that by faith in Jesus Christ, that human beings are valued. Whoever they are and whatever they've done, friends, whoever we are, whatever we've done, we are valued. Because like Rahab, behind every broken and sinful person, there are very real human beings in need of the love of God, in need of salvation, in need of redemption. 
I believe that this is a hard message for us to hear sometimes. When we, especially in these days, we look around and we see the brokenness of the world, when we see the sinfulness around us, when we see broken, hurting people hurting other people. But behind every broken, sinful, hurting person is a person in need of the love of God, in need of redemption, in need of a Savior, in need of Christ, in need of the love of God. Nobody here can claim moral superiority. We are all on a level playing field in the eyes of Christ, and we are all in need of redemption and in need of a Savior. The church is full of those people. We are those people. Our community, our world is in need of those people. And the second is that by faith in Jesus Christ, that human pain can be transformed for godly gain. Rahab's story wouldn't be here if it weren't for her pain. In her pain, in our pain, Christ takes our broken past and that becomes fuel for a testimony of grace. Our brokenness, our places of brokenness, those things that seek to destroy us, whether they are things that we have brought on ourselves or circumstances that have happened to us, regardless of that, those become the things, those become the instruments for God to work and to use to transform us. Paul teaches us that when we are weak, then we are strong because it is Christ's strength that works in and through us. And then we learn that by faith in Jesus Christ, the worst sinner can become the greatest saint. Rahab was a great sinner, but Christ was a great Savior. And so it is with all of us. Christ taught us that the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. I wonder if some of us here today are wrestling with this idea that we are broken beyond repair, that the things that we've done are, are too much, that there's too much brokenness or too much sin or too much hurt. Maybe it is the torture of the pain of a broken family, or we look back in our lives and we just see mistake after mistake after mistake. Maybe it's an alcoholic who's been labeled a failure all of your life, and you just look back and you see that there is no hope of a new life. Friends, I want to say that the story of Rahab is here for you. Let this story be a giant memorial. And engraved on that memorial stone are the words of, the, of whom the world is not worthy. When we begin to really understand that and believe that, believe the glory of that passage and believe the story of God's grace in the midst of that, that Jesus Christ, the same Jesus Christ who redeemed Rahab and who put her in the royal line of Jesus Christ, put her in the line of the Savior, will redeem us, who will make us an heir to the kingdom of Christ. That's when it all begins to change. You see, we are all Rahab. We have all sold ourselves into sin in one way or another, by the maliciousness in our hearts towards one another, by the things that we say and do, by the things that we don't say and do, by the choices that we make, by the way that we live our lives, our pride before God, the lust of our eyes, the lust of our flesh. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. We are all Rahab. 
But thank God that a Savior came into our camp. A free offer of salvation is here, and all who call on the name of Jesus will be saved. A righteous God will bring down the walls of a rebellious world, and we will be saved. We won't be touched by the destruction if we're in Christ. And not even the last enemy, death, can touch us, can destroy us. For there's a scarlet cord hanging in the window of the house of every sinner who professes faith in Jesus Christ. And that cord is the blood of the Savior who's sealing the house, who's sealing our hearts. This cord is a sign that you, that I, just unworthy sinner in the eyes of the world, that we've come into this covenant of grace, that God has extended this covenant of grace, that God calls us his own. Therefore, we look to the author of our salvation as we turn to Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See how the writer makes the transition from chapter 11 and the hall of heroes of faith and now shows the reader that we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses in order that we might run the race of faith. I love this image. Like I get excited by this image of this idea of running the race of faith and running this race and pursuing it with all that we have, running and so that we can run the race of faith and we can finish this race strong. I love everything about this idea and this imagery of running the race except the idea of actually running because I am actually not a runner and I don't actually like to run at all. Um, I was telling Ray and Luis uh, a couple of weeks ago about my, my running experience. I was saying in, in school I used to be a runner and I the events that I ran were um, short distance events. I was a sprinter, and so I would run 100-yard dash. And my other event, shockingly, was I ran hurdles. And they, like, laughed at me, and they, like, didn't believe I was a hurdle, I, that I ran hurdles. And I'm like, I know, my height gave me this great advantage for running hurdles. The only advantage I had was that when I fell over the hurdles, I was not far from the ground, right? In fact, that's exactly what happened. When I fell over the hurdles, I fell and I broke my elbow. And then I didn't run anymore after that. Except for as I got to like later middle age, I decided I wanted to run a marathon. And like I hadn't run in a really long time. I hate running. I hadn't run before. But like running a marathon was on my bucket list because everybody should run a marathon in their life. I don't know. I just thought I need to check that off, run a marathon. So I woke up on like my birthday one year and decided I'm running a marathon. And so I didn't know what to do. I joined a running club because I thought that was the best way. So I joined this running group. And the best part about this running group is they actually make you run like all the time so that you can get ready for running a marathon. And I, they had like six months or whatever. And so every week you had to go and you had to run. The best part about this group is like all of these people encouraging you and saying, you can do this. You got this. You can run. Literally when I started this group, I could not run for from my house to the end of the block, like I could, a quarter of a mile. I could not run, right? But they would encourage you every week. They're like, you can do this. You will be able to run this marathon. We promise. 
one of the coaches, he would, every week we would go out to run and do our runs at Memorial Park. He would strap on a giant, full-sized American flag, like to his hip, and he would do his run. Literally, friends, I could not strap on my, the extra weight of my water bottle and do the run every week. But he would do it, and he would be encouraging us the whole time. Well, that's what I think of every time I read this passage. That's what it means. Like this whole great cloud of witnesses, like encouraging us in our faith, supporting us, cheering us on, like so that we can finish the race. Somebody asked me last service, like, did you run the marathon? Yes, I did run the marathon. I finished the marathon. Yes, I did. And so I know I'm going to be able to finish this race too, right? It's all of them cheering us on so that we see Abraham and Sarah and Rahab and David and all of them, all this great cloud of witnesses encouraging us in our faith. Listen, friends, they were just great sinners who called on this great Savior and they became great people of faith, all of them, so that we too can do it. We can be free from all of these accusations that we put on ourselves, all of these accusations that Satan puts on us, all these accusations that the world puts on us. Listen, friends, when God calls us worthy, stop calling ourselves unworthy. When we are saved, we are saved. Do not let sin have dominion over you. Don't let your past sins weigh you down as you run this race of faith. But how do we do that? How do do we break free? Well, the scripture says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You will not advance in your faith by looking back at the pain of your past, but instead by looking at the greatness of Jesus. Look at the greatness of Jesus. Jesus, who was the great, great grandson of Rahab. Jesus, who bore his grandmother's sins on Calvary. Jesus, who was the great, great grandson of a harlot, who though he was without sin, he became sin, so that we who are sinners, we might become righteousness with God. Look to Jesus who was the great, great Savior of sinners, who was punished by God for our sins so that we could be set free from the bondage of sin. Jesus, who was the great, great one who led the captives free and who now rules in this kingdom full of recovering sinners who he calls saints from his throne in heaven. Listen, we all know that when there is a ship struggling for safety in the middle of a storm, in the midst of a great storm at sea, you're not going to find, the ship doesn't find its way to shore by turning back and looking into the storm, but instead by looking ahead, trying to find the light on the shore. Friends, you and I, we're not going to recover for our, from our storms of the past and all of the wounds of our sins by looking back and focusing on those wounds and those pains, but instead by focusing on the gospel of grace, by focusing on the author and the finisher of our salvation. And when we reach those shores, we're going to be met by Rahab's boy. We're going to be met by the Son of God who is the light of the world. And then, to the glory of Jesus, and then the company of Rahab, we're going to meet Barak and Gideon and Samson and Paul and Peter and all of those nameless and countless others who are known but to God. 
and who by faith in Jesus Christ, they became people that of whom the world was not worthy. So as we close today, I want to ask you, is there something in your past that you need to let go of, that you need to lay down so that you can run the race of faith? Or are you struggling? Are you struggling to find your place, to find your place in God's story? Are you wondering, how does God want to use me? Well, just ask him. Or maybe you need to, to, like Rahab, you need to make a profession of faith. You need to say yes with the faith and the, that, and the hope that Rahab demonstrated, with that same faith and hope, you need to put your trust in God and give him your future. Will you bow your heads with me? If that's you, and if you, you need to make a profession of faith and to put your faith and your hope into God, I just encourage you to do that now and to pray and to ask God, to say to God, yes, I will trust you. I trust you with my future. I put my faith and hope in you. And if that's you, would you, would you come and, and see Ray or I after the service? We want to be a part of the great cloud of witnesses that surrounds you, that encourages you, that walks alongside you on this journey to support you. We don't want you to have to go it alone. And if you're struggling to find your your place in God's story or, or to lay down the things of your past. Would, and you need some help to do that. We want to be here for you to pray with you and to encourage you. God, we thank you. We thank you that you have set us free, that you've invited us in to your story, God, that you have redeemed us, that you meet us where you are, but you don't where we are, but you don't leave us there, God. God, that we, that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses and that you encourage us to continue to grow in our faith and to grow closer to you. God, I pray that you would draw near to us in this time and that you would reveal to us what you are calling us to and who you are calling us to be. Would you reveal yourself to us? And would you reveal to us how you want us to be a part of your great story? It is in the mighty name of your son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.